Um, it's common peace for those who indeed now can experience it as subjects of his sovereign benevolence. He comes in peace here into Jerusalem on this day as it's recorded. And initially, as we've already described and you've seen in the text, many herald him as king. They do so in great excitement. Soon it's discovered that this is just a really a superficial allegiance. Because they really don't want to confess Jesus Christ as Lord and submit to him as their sovereign master. Instead, they want the blessings, the blessings that this king might bring about. But they want to rule their own heart. So this initial devotion given to Christ soon turns to deadly treason. To the time that remains, I'll just kind of walk through this text with you. But to organize it to some degree, we'll look first at the preparation of Christ coming in on this particular day to be presented as king. And then finally, how people think about him. That's the third thing, the perception of him then. And of course, it relates to now. In your text, in verse 1, notice here it begins with this preparation. Really, all the events that occurred prior to this day were in preparation. But here, specifically, it says they, they drew near to Jerusalem, so they're coming into the city. It says he, he sends them out. They, they are his disciples. It's ready for G time now for Jesus to be focused on, for him to be in the limelight. He has just completed a three-year public ministry, starting out very quietly with a great crescendo in time. Quietly in the sense that a smaller group was exposed to the glory of this incarnate deity. But in time, masses would be made aware. His ministry really began, you can find it in Matthew chapter 3, and I'll read it for you. It's, it's quite incredible. It's the baptism of John. John the Baptist functioned really as a prophet between the two testaments, if you will. His calling was to prepare for this day, to make a preparation for Jesus Christ, to be, to be a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. It was at this baptism in Matthew chapter 3, John expresses to Jesus, I, I need to be baptized by you. And why do you come to me? Jesus says, let it be for now. 
Thus it is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. All that was commanded to do, both, both by, by any kind of law or requirement, and then also by example, Jesus accomplishes it. Remember, we took this communion away for the bread, his righteousness. Jesus fulfills it all, and here is a symbol presentation of that, even here in this submission that he engages in. The Lord of glory being in great submission. John the Baptist, who recognizes, I can't even tie your shoelaces. He knows who Jesus is. Jesus says in command, let it be. And when he was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. This is why, by the way, we come up from the water, just side, in immersion, as Christ was. He comes up and... The heavens actually were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, not a dove, but like that in a way, coming down, something to rest on him. And then here's something miraculous. Behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This idea of well-pleasing is this is perfect righteousness here in Christ. And to demonstrate that, not that he needed to do that, but we need to see that. So you have a voice on the Father confirming the Son. And then the next chapter, chapter 4. He's immediately tempted by the devil. Tempted in the sense of being tested. And that's really all a temptation is. Our experience with temptation, however, is that we break at some point. Jesus never did. He was tested. Yes, it was a real temptation. And he really survived it to the end. Here he is in a dark, difficult, wilderness place. And Jesus says to the devil, Matthew chapter 4, verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and and him only shall you serve. He stands the test. He makes it through. It proves his righteousness. He has a message, and he begins to preach. That's how his ministry starts. What message would he give? The same message we give today. Repent. Turn. Turn away from sin and to the Savior. Come to Christ. That's what he means. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The king has come. That's the message that we proclaim. Christ has come. Repent. He calls 12 to follow him. To learn from him. We call them the disciples. They come to follow him to learn. He teaches them. Because they will need to teach others. And in verse 23 of chapter 4, Matthew, he goes out through all Galilee. That's, that's north of Jerusalem. He goes out there and he's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The king has come. This is kind of a preparation for this very day when this king will come through Jerusalem and announce it. 
And what does he do? And he heals every disease and every affliction among the people. Here is he engaging in every aspect here of healing. This is, this is more than you can imagine. Everyone's getting healed. Demonstrating his great power. This is not an ordinary person. This is just not a one-off event. The masses, every disease, every affliction. So his fame spreads, verse 24 of Matthew 4. So they bring him the sick. They, they bring him more. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains and oppressed by demons and those with seizures, paralytics. He heals them. He heals them all. Now you see the crowds start to swell. They start following him from Galilee and wherever he goes. Well, he continues teaching these disciples that are following him. You'll find some of his instructions in chapter 5. He calls them blessed. Blessed because God doesn't impute iniquity to them. They'll come to find out. He describes those indeed who are of the blessed, poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There are those that mourn. And they'll be comforted for the meek because they will inherit a great reward. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness because they're going to get it, they will be satisfied. They will be peacemakers. They will be called sons of God. Persecution, yes. Persecution, why? Because of righteousness. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he calls on his disciples then to rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. And besides, they persecuted all who came before. This is a great kingdom, but it will come in the midst of persecution. He goes on in his teaching then to clarify the law. In Matthew chapter 5 and 21 and following, he said, uh, you guys are just holding to the letter. You shouldn't murder. But I'll tell you what the implication is. You shouldn't hate a brother in your heart. And if you take that by measurement, you'll find yourself guilty. Because maybe you haven't committed the act of murder, but there's some people that you really don't like. They get on your nerves, and you hate them. And so, you're really not a keeper of the law. Can I tell you someone who is? It's Jesus Christ. That's the righteous standard. The crowds grew as Jesus gives this profound teaching that they really never heard before. And then this miraculous work as he, as he then can just instantly feed thousands and thousands of people. As people come to him with all kinds of ailments, he can heal every single one. And go to these, don't go, but I'm sure you've heard of these fake healing shows now. 
they line up only certain people with ailments that you can't really prove. Could you imagine Jesus Christ walking into a hospital and everybody gets up and leaves? Even the ICU unit. Hey, even in the morgue. That, that's what we're talking about. This is miraculous. This is totally different. You can, you can imagine then why the, the crowd is in such a, a, a fury. This is unique. We've, we've, we've never seen this before. And they want him then to be king. So they're going to come and take him by force, John would tell us in his gospel, John 6.15, to make him king. But Jesus, this is during his public ministry, he withdraws again. Because they want a different kind of king. They want the king that can just fix everything that's temporally broken, not eternally broken. Jesus doesn't need anyone to make him king. He is king. He will choose the right time to to make that fully known. So he gathers his disciples together and tells them, let's prepare for my entrance. And back to our text in Matthew, he says this instructions to go in this village, and then this is what you're going to find. Now, how does Jesus know that he's going to find some man there that will give him these animals for him to walk in? Because it isn't happenstance. He is the Lord of glory. He just didn't figure out this would be a good thing to do or just prearranged it. He determined it to happen. Remember, again, this is the guy who can speak and the winds and waves obey his voice. They don't really understand what's going on in its fullness, and I would say we often don't understand the fullness of it. We wouldn't be so anxious and worried about stuff, now would we? Do you know this Lord of glory? You say, well, well, I'm worried about what's going to happen next. Really? Do you know Christ? Maybe you need to be reminded of it. He makes this deliberate, uh, uh, he makes this deliberate effort to enter into Jerusalem to be presented as king. He prepares for it by working out this deal where he can get this animal to ride on. What's his purpose? Verse 4, he explains it for us. We don't have to guess because it's going to fulfill what the prophets said. In, in other words, whatever Scripture says, that will happen. It will be completed. This is God's revelation, as I've talked before. This is his divine decree that's actually been revealed for us. So this is the standard. If you want to know what's going to happen next, here it is. And in time, we already know it. And revelation, what it says, that's what's going to happen, whether you believe it or not. It's going to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet because God has determined that. And what has he determined? That the king would come to you, verse 5, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. To that culture, that would have meant everything. We saw a king coming in like Solomon did in the same way in 1 Kings chapter 1. Because as you can imagine, 
a king has a lot of authority. He has a lot of power. When doing this, entering in this way, specifically in this way, demonstrates that he's coming how? In peace. You don't go to battle on an animal that is small and puny and never been ridden before. <laughs> it really wouldn't be very trustworthy. You, you, you wouldn't put your king and your leader on such a meek and mild animal. But he does that to physically portray, fulfill certainly, and why it is done, it is to demonstrate this, that Christ has come in peace. And that's what today is about. The king has come. And he's come in peace. He's come in salvation. Zechariah 9 would also say, then, to rejoice. Shout aloud. Behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation. He's coming to save. He's humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, Zechariah 9, 9. Well, he's ready to come into Jerusalem now, and if you're in our text, drop down to verse 7. As portrayed here on the donkey, it is a peaceful entrance. And what is the response, immediate response? It's this praise that we've talked about, verse 8. It's, it's praise and adoration. Remember, they, they know who Jesus is, they being the crowd. And then they see him coming in as a king, and he's coming in in very humble way. And so what they do to honor him in that culture was to throw their garments, which that was of a high value to them and have their clothes weren't made in China back then. So it cost them a lot, a lot, big sacrifice. They threw it down for him just to, to walk over and, and even cut branches down. And again, part of their tradition, spread that on the road to, to be some sort of an act of a jubilant triumph as Jesus comes come marching in, if you will. They're paying homage to, to the king. And look at verse 9. Massive crowds, you can imagine, following him. And here's the phrase they're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The son of David would be king. They're recognizing, yes, he's coming as a king. They, they, they adorn the road because he's coming as a king. They see him coming in peace. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they would say. And then this word, Hosanna, which I've mentioned before. Hosanna. In Hebrew, it's an expression that simply means this, save now. Psalm 118 and 25 records it this way, save us, we pray. That's the idea. It, it is like a prayer to say, Lord, save me. And by the way, that's a good prayer to know. If you recognize who he is, that should be your response. Save now. Son of David, as I mentioned, it, it, it acknowledges his messianic claim. He has come to save his people from their sin. And beloved, for all who come to him, he will save you now. You need to know that. 
This is the, the message he gave to his disciples as well to go preach to the nations. To repent. To come to Jesus Christ. And he will save you now. This, this is what Congress needs to know. It, it would change everything about our country. This is what all the news networks, even the ones you like, need to know. This should be on the front page headline. But let's look at this perception of the king in verse 10. And that's part of the problem. They really didn't quite get it. We've given you the background to it and how he comes in and fulfills all of these prophetic uh, statements. But he's perceived a little differently from depending what angle you look at. You have the multitudes first in verse 10. They're stirred up, the whole city, crowds, if you will, and they're asking, well, well, who is this? Who is this specifically? I mean, you can imagine, this is not just a couple of people. These are throngs of people, and they kind of see this guy and what's going on, but not everybody is certain, and they're all caught up in the frenzy of saying this phrase, Hosanna, which it might just be a cliche to them at this point. They didn't really know who he was. That's the problem. I mean, they saw the miracles. They knew about the miracles. They could see that he was fulfilling what the prophets had said would happen. But yet they really didn't know him. If you remember in John chapter 3, there's this famous guy by the name of Nicodemus who was a ruler of the Jews at that time. And he testifies and affirms, we, we, we know that God is with you because none of this stuff could happen unless God was with you. He, he recognized that. And Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say it to you, unless you're born again, you can't even see this kingdom of God. Nicodemus thought he was in it because he was in the religious order. He, he, he attempted to practice right things in his life. But there had to come about a supernatural change on the inside, not just an external conformity, because all our external conformity, as good as it might be, it isn't good enough in the first place. What has to happen is an internal change of the heart, and that is a miracle of God. And so how, how will that happen? It's real simple. Pray that he would save you now. We know this perception of this crowd is really superficial. It's full of actually, for the most part, cliche. Not everyone, certainly, but the majority. They're all just caught up in doing what everyone thinks is the thing to do. Unfortunately, that's not the way our culture works. We just don't all follow the same. Okay, well, maybe it is. (laughs) It's easy to get caught up in the crowd and believe what everybody else believes because that's what everybody believes. So so wouldn't that be right? Well, everybody could be wrong, too. And they're demonstrated to be that way in their response by the end of this week when they cry out 
to this one that they're saying, crown, crown, crown him, crown him, crown him. And then they're going to turn around and say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. How does that happen? He doesn't meet the expectations of their wicked heart. His command to them, you want to be saved? Repent. Believe. Reject your own ideas and ideology and come to Christ. Make Christ the center. Submit to his sovereignty. There was another group there that Matthew addresses in verse 12. And remember, this isn't necessarily chronological. This is just something that happened. This probably happened most like the very next day, but he puts it in here because he wants to tie in the idea of Jesus' authority coming in as king. Probably the first thing he did the next day, but nevertheless, verse 12, where he, this famous place, we know he, he goes into the temple and he drives out all those who sold and bought in the temple and he overturns the table. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. I think it's profound at this point that he didn't receive opposition when you stop and think about it. I mean, here you got this big crowd. They're all supporting and chanting for him. And then he goes into this marketplace. This would have been the court of Gentiles in the temple ground. There would have been concentric courtyards. It was a huge place. Herod had the great had rebuilt it. And it was essentially a new, beautiful place. The most outer section is the court of the Gentiles. It's where anyone could come to behold and see the glory of God. That's what Judaism was about. Had a temple in the center. And people would come and see what was going on through these symbols, through these rituals. The Gentiles weren't allowed into the next court, which would have been the court of women, then the court of men, and then the court of priests. They they couldn't go through that, but they could be in this outer court. And what what did they do? They just used that space to cheat and lie and steal, demonstrating their hypocrisy. These exchanging of the animals, no doubt history would tell us Many people come long way to Jerusalem and need to have a sacrifice, and their sacrifice was then deemed, oh, that's not good enough. You're going to have to go down to the temple court and buy you another bird because that one's not good. Well, what's wrong with this one? Uh, it was got one feather missing, whatever. That, that's the kind of thing that went on. So a lot of people just didn't even bother bringing an animal. They just had to buy one there, and, of course, they're going to do it at an inflated price. The money changers, they couldn't use their own coins, whatever they might be, they had to have a special coin, and so there was an exchange of money. And of course, the exchange always benefited those money changers. <laughs> they charged a premium for that. Jesus turns over those tables. There's a Roman guard nearby, but they don't come out. The religious leaders who you know are already mad about what's going on, they don't come out and do anything about it. I think it can surmise the religious leaders, as we read in our text earlier from John 12, they they were a little upset. Our text says they were upset. 
They knew he had the authority to do it. And the religious leaders were worried about the crowd. The crowd was probably cheering on the fact that um, maybe some of this cheating would go away. In verse 14 of our text, Matthew puts this in there too for us to know. In the midst of him demonstrating his authority, comes in as king and peace, and, and then he literally cleans house. And then here you have almost, you say, well, why is this here? Verse 14, the blind and the lame come to him in the temple. And what does he do to them? Well, he's doing like he always does. He heals them. You see, the blind and the lame would have been ceremonially excluded from the temple. I mean, they might have been a Jew that could get past the court of the Gentiles, but they couldn't go any further. They couldn't even get into there because uh, they, they could get into that area, but they couldn't go any further because they were ceremonially unacceptable. Jesus heals them. Now he gives them a straight shot. He brings them in. It, it, he really does heal them, but he also demonstrates symbolically what he is doing here. He can heal all our diseases. Isaiah would talk about the Messiah who would come. In Isaiah 35, he says, Behold, your God will come with vengeance and will recompense. He will come and save you. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped, and the lame man will leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute, he'll sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And here Jesus is demonstrating and fulfilling all of that as well. But there are the mighty there. You don't like what's going on, and you'll find that in verse 15. They were indignant. I think that's kind of an understatement. The chief priests and scribes, these would be the leaders, they, they heard of all the wonderful things, they saw all the wonderful things, but they heard these children crying out in worship of him, Hosanna to the son of David. That would have been a key phrase. And they're mad. And they confront Jesus, treat him as if he's just some sort of rabbi that's come along. Don't you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus says, yeah. <laughs> Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. I think if they didn't praise him, the very walls of the temple would have shouted out. Because Jesus is being presented as who he is. He is king. He is demonstrating that. He claims his deity in this very event in making that affirmation. The children are singing out this psalm, Psalm 8. And Jesus is affirming, yes, I am God. They should worship me. Jesus should be worshipped because he is God. And i give you one more thing as I wrap this up, just as a conclusion of this day and this event. Jesus prepares for all this. He's presented, and then people look at him a lot of different ways. And then this tagline here, verse 17 in chapter 21, 
He leaves and he goes out of the city and then just lodges with his friends. This would be M Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He, he does this each day. He goes to the temple during Holy Week, as you'll read about. Use the guide I provided. And then he goes back out into the countryside. God, the, the king of glory. A transcendent God who, who is even there immediately healing the blind and the lame. And then he leaves there, the crowds in Jerusalem, and he just goes back to a little humble countryside and spends time with his people. And that shows the eminence of Christ. Don't miss the fact that he is a holy, transcendent God. He upholds all things by the word of his power. He has a purpose and plan for everything that goes on. But here is the miraculous thing that he would dwell with us. Truly, Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus Christ has entered into the world and the crowd asks, who is this? He is a prophet, a proclaimer of truth, and the call is to repent. But he is more than just any prophet. He is the prophet. And God would say, listen to him. He functions as a, as a priest, as a mediator between God and man. In fact, the only mediator between God and man. But he isn't just any one of these priests. He is the Holy One. The Righteous One, as we'll learn in days ahead, who Melchizedek portrays. Because he's not only a priest who can sympathize with our weakness, who mediates on our behalf, but he is also the King of Glory. He is indeed the king of peace. He has fulfilled this. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He has come as, as a lamb to be slaughtered. He has come in peace to accomplish what he will. But be assured of this, he is coming again. He is coming as a lion, not a lamb. He is coming as a destroyer, not a savior. And if that causes great fear and consternation to you, that's a good thing. Because he will save you now. And you will need to be saved from his wrath to come. The good news is you can have peace. Call on Christ. Come to him. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for you sending the Son, his submission to fill all righteousness and then to atone for our sin. And as I, we're reminded of that, I, I pray, Father, that we will continually, truly behold Jesus Christ. Thank you for the peace that we have through Jesus Christ. And give us great refuge and security in Christ and Him alone. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.
Take a moment now, beloved, to think on these things as we have emphasized this morning, privately where you're at. If you need to respond to God, do so directly where you're at. You don't need to come to me. Go to him and even say a simple word, just Hosanna. Take a moment now. Father, I do pray that we would indeed behold our, our King as this is indeed the day of peace. May we be truly confessing Jesus Christ as Lord and receiving his sovereign benevolence. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. to call an audible this morning and <clears throat> sing 307. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. Amen. So I'll stand up and turn to 307. Jesus is the sweetest name I know. benediction this morning I uh, really like to use the verse of the week from Psalm 96 I just uh, reading that I just really thought that was a, be a great way to end the service so let's go ahead and bow our heads and pray Father we're thankful that you have given us a new song indeed and you tell us to sing a new song sing to the Lord all the earth Sing to the Lord and bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord glory due his name. Bring an offering that and come to his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth's 
Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the word is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equality. Gracious Father, we're indeed thankful. We just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.